Have you ever, have you ever witnessed a defining moment? Have you ever been a part of one, seen one? Uh, these are the kinds of things, these are moments that can change, fundamentally change everything for everyone or for you, a defining moment. A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with uh, my friend Hazy, and he said, let's put on the TV because my friend from school is about to compete in the Winter Olympics. Uh, This guy is a guy called Matt Graham. He's a coastie. He went to school with Hazy, and so he wanted to watch it, and he was going to compete in the moguls, which is when I don't really know exactly. It's like bumps on skis downhill. He was going to do that. And so the TV's running in the background, and then Matt Graham's time is finally up, and we're like, oh, let's watch. Let's go, Central Coast. And we're watching this guy compete in the Olympics, and he starts heading down the hill, Now, I don't know a lot about skiing, as you can probably already tell, but it looked pretty rough. It looked very rough. And I was like, is he supposed to be bouncing around that much? Should his skis be pointing all different directions? It it wasn't. He wasn't supposed to be doing that. And unfortunately, he tanked. He tanked massively, and he got out straight away. It was a terrible run. This was a huge moment for this guy. I mean... He had been training for four years leading up to the Winter Olympics, probably training his whole life to some degree, perfecting his technique day in, day out. And then in 20 seconds, this one defining moment completely tanked it. Olympic dreams over. It was gone. Or imagine this. This is a hypothetical. But imagine if you could watch a video clip of the moment that COVID entered our ecosystem as as a world. Now, I don't know where COVID came from and people have different ideas, but imagine it was from a lab somewhere and imagine if we had a video clip of the moment they forgot to put the stopper on that test tube and the first person got sick with COVID or whatever, however it happened. Just imagine being able to witness that moment that would be a defining moment for the whole world. It's a huge thing. Some people here tonight, without even realising it perhaps, will be having a defining moment, a life-altering, eternity-changing moment. Because what happens when people encounter the person, Jesus, and when they respond to him, well, it's a defining moment. It changes everything about the course of your life. When, when you decide what you're going to do with the person, Jesus, it really does change everything. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be seeing who Jesus is as he reveals himself in the scriptures and deciding how you're going to respond to him. That's a big thing. So I want to pray for God's help in a really significant thing tonight and we're going to look at this passage together. Let's pray. Father God, please help us to be aware of the moment we're in as we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of, of the Gospel of John tonight. Father, please do a mighty work among us by your Spirit. Please open our eyes to see who Jesus is and respond rightly to him. Father, please transform us, please change us, please do something huge in us tonight by your Spirit and through your mighty word. Amen. The context of this passage that we're looking at here in chapter 5, we saw it with Todd last week. Jesus has just healed a guy. It was a man who'd been unable to walk for 38 years and Jesus comes along and with a word, he's healed and he says, get up and walk, take your mat. The problem we saw last week was that he did this on the Sabbath. 
which was uh, a day that the Jews kept as a day where you weren't to work at all. You weren't allowed to do any sort of work, including picking up a mat and walking around with it. And so you can see the consequences of all this. Verse 16, here's the context. So because Jesus was doing these things, healing this bloke on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So this conflict over what you should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath is the whole context for a whole bunch of huge stuff that Jesus is going to say about himself. And so here's the big thing you're going to see unfold in these verses. Jesus is truly God in every sense, yet he's distinct from the Father. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, we'll unpack that together and we'll get clear on it together. Let's have a look at the passage and and see this kind of fall out. It actually falls out in a series of statements that Jesus makes. He kind of says five different things about who he is in relation to the Father and you'll see that claim unpacked. So the first claim is this, Jesus claims that he's exempt from the Sabbath like God is. They're accusing Jesus of breaking the rule of keeping the Sabbath and so in verse 17, Jesus, he mounts his defence. Verse 17, in his defence, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now, what's he saying by that? What does he mean? My father's at work, so I'm working too. Well, you may not know this, but the Jews believed that logically God the Father couldn't completely stop working from all of his work on the seventh day and rest. He couldn't completely keep the Sabbath because if he did, the whole world would fall apart. They knew that God is the one who upholds the world and keeps it running and so their their, their view was that God, or at least many of them, they had this argument over it actually, but their view was that God had to do some work on the Sabbath to keep the world spinning as if, uh, you know, you might wake up one morning and be like, does gravity feel a bit off to you today? And and God's like taking a breather, you know, like the animals are dying, you're like, what's going on? God stopped working on the Sabbath and it's all falling apart. And so Jesus says to them, you know how God the Father doesn't have to keep the Sabbath? Well, neither do I. I don't need to either because I'm the son of my Father. That's a big claim, to claim that he doesn't need to keep the Sabbath as God the Father doesn't. Now, Jesus, he actually gets accused of breaking the Sabbath again, just a few chapters over in chapter 7, uh, verse 22, 23. The Jewish leaders come at Jesus and they say, you're breaking the Sabbath, and he gets accused of healing on the Sabbath again. And there, Jesus makes a perfectly good argument as to why he doesn't have to keep the Sabbath, and it's around the fact that it's better to heal on the Sabbath and so on. doesn't require him to claim to be God in chapter 7, but that's not what Jesus does here in chapter 5. <laughs> Instead of saying the easier thing, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, he jumps in with this incredible claim, well, I'm like God the Father. I don't have to keep the Sabbath, neither does he. You see the reaction to that in verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal <laughs> with God. Jesus is picking a fight. That's why he's doing this. He started by breaking some of their rules, that's a big deal, and now it's heresy. The Jewish leaders want him dead, literally, that they're planning to kill him. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Here's the second claim that he follows all this up with, verse 19. Jesus claims that he does the work that God does. 
He does the works of God. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he, all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. What's going on here is Jesus is picturing the ancient working relationship between a father and a son in, back in the day. Back in this time, you didn't have to stress about what you do after school. You know, when you finish the HSC or you drop out before then, and you're like, what do I do? Do I be a hairdresser or an architect or a nurse or, I, I don't know, so many options, it's so hard to choose and it's crippling. Well, if you lived back here, it wouldn't have been hard at all. You'd be like, what's my dad do? My dad's a fisherman. What am I going to do? I'm going to be a fisherman too. It was really, really simple. Jesus is picturing himself as a son apprenticed by the father, doing the things that his father does. He doesn't work on his own. He does nothing by himself. He does what he sees his father doing. There's two things that are pretty outrageous about that claim. First of all, he's claiming to do the works of God. (laughs) He's claiming to do the things that God does. And secondly, He's claiming this intimate relationship with God the Father, truly like a son to, to a dad, following him around, seeing what he does, copying him, doing, working as he works. So this is a claim to divinity. He's claiming to be God. But notice as well, though, there's a distinction in this claim. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. In fact, he's saying, I'm a very different, I'm a different person. I follow the Father. Jesus is claiming dependence on the Father. As a son here on earth, he submits to him. He follows him. He does what his Father does. So this isn't a reciprocal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son follows the Father, but the Father doesn't follow the Son. This is a claim to divinity with a clear distinction the Son is not the Father. Now, amazing as all that is, that these things just keep dropping in these verses. Verse 21, another one claims, another claim comes. Jesus claims to be the one who gives life. Look at verse 21 there. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. Now, Jesus' audience knew the Old Testament, they knew their Bibles, and they knew that there's only one person who can raise the dead and give life. It's God. In 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, the king in that chapter is asked to, to heal a guy called Naaman who's got leprosy, and in response he says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? No, humans can't do that. Mere humans can't do that. God is the one and only life giver. He's the one who, in Ezekiel 37, is the one who can raise a valley of dead, dry bones and put flesh on them and bring life to them. And here Jesus says, so can I. I give life. That is a tremendous claim. That is a big claim. But here's the thing with Jesus. He doesn't just say stuff, claim it, without any backup. Now, ultimately, I think when he says this, he is looking forward to the resurrection of the dead when Jesus will see all people raised for judgment. But Jesus isn't just talk, 
And actually, in a few short chapters, in chapter 11, Jesus will literally raise a man called Lazarus from the dead. A guy who's dead, rotting in a tomb, he'll call him out and give life to a dead man. No one does that but God. Now, these statements from Jesus, these claims about the things that he and the Father do, they're piling up on one another and it's kind of gaining a momentum. But here's the fourth thing, Jesus claims to be the judge of the whole earth on behalf of God. And notice that's slightly different to the other things we've said. Not, he doesn't judge as God judges, he's actually judging for God. Uh, have a look, verse 22. It says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The Father trusts the Son, gives him the job of being the judge. Now, again, if you know your Old Testament part of the Bible, you'll know that judgment is a job reserved for who? For God. He's the judge of the whole earth. Genesis 18, verse 25, recognises that God is the one who judges the whole earth. But amazingly, here in John 5, it says that God the Father entrusts judgment to his man, his son, this man, his son, Jesus, such that the Father is the judge of the whole earth through his son, Jesus. Verse 27, in fact, kind of doubles down on this. Have a look at verse 27. It says, and again, he has given the son, Jesus, authority to judge because he is the son of man. And when it says that Jesus is the son of man there, that isn't saying that he is the son of a man, as in he's a human. It's actually saying he's the son of man, as in it's a title. Uh, We read from Daniel uh, 12 earlier, just a minute ago, but in Daniel chapter 7, there's this figure called the son of man. And he's one who is the agent of God most high. He's this figure who does the will of God, who will judge. He's the ruler of the whole earth. In fact, he is God himself in some sense. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. Now, if that's a bit confusing, you can have a read of Daniel 7 later on. But here's the point. Jesus is saying that I'm the ruler, I'm the judge of the whole world. That's who the Father has appointed me to be. And so again, this could only be understood as a claim to be God himself. And finally, because of all the things we've seen up to this point, um, particularly because he is the judge appointed by God the Father, finally Jesus claims that you need to worship him as you would worship God. Have a look at verse 23. He says, finally, after um, being appointed as judge, he says he's appointed as uh, the one who will judge, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, there's only one person that deserves our worship. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I'm the Lord, this is God speaking, I'm the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another. I'm not going to share my worship with anyone else. You worship me and me alone, is what the Bible says. The glory goes to God and God alone. And then here Jesus comes along and he says, honour me, glorify me, worship me as you do God the Father. And in fact, more than that, he actually goes a step further and he says, if you don't honour me, if you don't worship Jesus, 
then you're not really worshipping the Father. If you fail to recognise who Jesus is, then you're failing to recognise who the Father is. Their glory is tied up together. You can't worship God without worshipping Jesus, is the claim here. Has there ever been a bigger claim on the lips of anyone? (laughs) This is massive. Now, how does this work, this idea of you need to worship Jesus as you worship the Father? Is Jesus kind of stealing the attention from God the Father? Is Jesus saying, you need to worship and honour me, and he's kind of taking away the attention from the Father, saying, look at me, not him from now on? Well, no, that's not how it works. Rather, what happens is, as we worship the Son, that more and more reflects glory back to the Father who sent him. Come over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter chapter 2, and you'll see this really clearly here. Philippians 2, um, Uh, verse 5 down to the bottom there's this section that describes the fact that Jesus came he took on flesh as a man and he he died but that's not where it ends verse 9 here's where it's all headed because he died this humiliating death as a human on a cross verse 9 therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord so there's your worship of the son but why does all that happen last bit to the glory of God the Father And so as we pour out our praise to the Son, as we heap praise on Him, as Jesus is lifted up and glorified, all of that isn't stealing glory from the Father, it's bringing Him glory through the Son as we worship Him. And so the glory of the Father is bound up with the glory of the Son. As you honour Jesus, you honour His Father. It's a little bit like, through this whole section here, it's a little bit like Jesus is playing taboo. You you guys know that game where you have to get people to guess who you are and you can say anything except the name itself. So I'm like, I'm a former US president. I'm the colour orange. You've got to yell it out though. I'm the colour orange. I make America great again. Rhymes with thump. Come on, guys. Trump, thank you, my goodness, wow, right, so it's it's a little bit like he's playing taboo, right, Jesus is like, I do only what the Father does, I give life like the Father does, I judge on behalf of the Father, I get honoured as you would honour God, And, and they're like, are you the Father? No, I'm not the Father, are you the one true God? Yes, You see how careful he's been with his words. It's as if Jesus is stretching the limits of our language to say in every way possible, I am God, but I'm not the Father. We're different persons. Jesus is not the Father. They are distinct, but they are one in the same God. There's only one true God existing in, in fact, Trinity for all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you'll hear more about the Spirit in later chapters. And so where does all this lead us? What it means, guys, is with Jesus, there is no room for a middle ground. Jesus is either God in the flesh or legit. He's a crazy person. It's got to be one of those two things. You can't be lukewarm about Jesus. You've got to be all in, he's God, or all out, he's a bad dude. 
And so if you are all in, if you know Jesus to be the Lord God, well, it means when he speaks, we need to listen. If he's God, then he is in charge, can't sit on the fence. And secondly, guys, this is why we worship Jesus. I think sometimes when people are new to church, they come in, they know that Christians love their songs and they're like, gee, a lot of these songs are about a bloke called Jesus. I expected more songs about God, but here we are worshipping Jesus. Um, It is odd to think that if Jesus were not God himself, our songs are pretty weird. If he's just a good guy, a, a great person even, to spend your time singing praises to him is bizarre. But he's so much more than that, which is why our songs declare the praises of Jesus. All glory and honour and majesty and praise be to the name of Jesus. There's a good thing to be reminded of as we come out of some of our COVID restrictions. Now, praise God, I don't know if you guys have caught this, but actually next week, uh, as of next week, we'll be free to sing God's praises without masks on. And of course, if you'd like to, you can continue to wear a mask. If you like, that's great and fine to do, uh, but those restrictions will be gone. I am looking forward to hearing the voices of God's people declaring the praises of Jesus. That would be a good thing. It would be a very good thing. But I think, I think as we reflect on the last two years together as a church, I reckon one of the most significant impacts, as we think about the impact of COVID over the last two years on our church life together, is probably going to be the, the atrophy of our praise muscles, the weakening of our praise muscles. See, churches across the world, really, haven't seen this sort of a disruption for decades, if not hundreds of years, to their, to their corporate gatherings and our corporate worship of God. And more recently, it's been eased, which is wonderful, but we're still masked up. But I suspect for us as a church, we're probably a little bit out of shape. You know how, you, I said this a second ago, but you know how when you, you, you exercise, but then you stop exercising and your muscles, they, they get weaker. You get less good at it. You get out of shape. My fear is that our praise muscles might have wasted a little bit. And so can I encourage all of us, myself included, be mindful of this as we get the opportunity to gather. Consciously pay attention to your heart as we pray, as we sing, as we declare the praises of our good God. Are your affections for Jesus being stirred as we gather? Pay attention to that. And if they're not, well then stop and pray and ask God to remind you of why we worship Jesus. Because we have every reason in the world to. Pray that God would impress that on our hearts. Are you mentally present with what's going on? Declaring the praises of Jesus... (laughs) Or saying some words that come up on a screen because the people around you are, but really you're thinking about what you're going to be doing tomorrow. Engage your hearts, engage your minds, engage your bodies. Declare the praises of him who deserves all honour and praise and glory. He's the Lord God. Let's get our praise muscles pumping again. Um, And look, even think about this moment now as an opportunity to break the mould for yourself, right? You might be like, I've never been an eyes closed person before. Well, it's been so long that we've been able to sing together normally. Maybe you could, you, could, you could close your eyes, you could open your eyes, you could do whatever you wanted. You might be like, I've never really been a, I've always been a hands-in-the-pocket kind of person, right? Well, this is your chance to be like, look, we've had a little breather. No one remembers what you were like two years ago. So do what you want with your hands. If you want to clap, if you want to chuck them in the air, if you want whatever, engage your heart, your mind, your body with what's going on 
and, and feel free to do that as we praise our great King. Okay, we've seen who Jesus is and it's staggering. What follows in these verses is the implications of all of this and it's big. Here's where we find our defining moment, the second massive thing that we see in this passage. What you do with Jesus will define your eternal destiny. That's the second thing this passage shows us. Now, the reason your response to Jesus is so important is because of this fact. One day, every single one of us are destined to be judged by Jesus. There is a life after death. That's the claim of the Bible. But that life starts with a judgment. Have a look at verse 25. It says, Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead will be raised. It's almost like a hard-to-fathom picture, isn't it? There really will be a day when all the people who are dead will be raised again. That's going to happen. But here's the heavy thing. Look at what happens when they are raised. Verse 28. He says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, he repeats it, and come out, and those who have done what is good will rise to be... Oh, sorry, my goodness, will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. All of us are destined to answer to the judge, Jesus, for how we've lived our lives. All who deserve life, it says, will get it, eternal life, and those who deserve condemnation will receive condemnation. What this passage is saying is, is heavy, there really is a day coming for every single person who will stand before the God of the universe, Jesus, and he will be our judge. That's heavy. Everyone. The good news is everyone. The corrupt politician, the sex offender, the war criminal. It's good news that those people will face judgment, isn't it? Justice will be done but not just for the people that we consider really bad, everyone. The person who serves you when you're shopping, your neighbour, your brother and sister, me, you, all of us will really be raised again one day for judgement. Now, the good news is that Jesus is a really, really good judge. He's fair, that's what verse 30 says. He judges as his father instructs, his judgment is just. He's fair, so that's good. But the bad news is, if Jesus is a fair judge, then actually we're in trouble. I know that I am. Not, not one of us in this room is going to be able to face Jesus the judge and at the end be able to be like, hey Jesus, look at how good I am. Look at how well I did. I deserve eternal life. On that scale, we're all going to fall short. Lots of places in the Bible point this out, uh, but Romans 3.23 is really clear. Here it is, just listen to this. It says, all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. 
We fall short of God's standard. Now, sin is not living rightly to the God who created you. And often this is, comes out in the way we treat one another. And just on that level alone, I'm sure all of you, if you think about it for a second, would agree, you've not treated all the people around you perfectly as if they, the way they deserved. But most importantly, sin is not just about what we do to others, but it's actually about how we've responded to the God who made us, whether we've loved Him as we should, and on that level, again and again and again, we all fall short. And so here, honestly, is the heaviest news you could possibly ever come to terms with. All of us will one day face Jesus. We're destined to face Jesus as our judge. All of us will fall short when we do. It's worth letting that sink in for just a second. That's the destiny of all people. It's, it's heavy. But here's the best news in the world. Verse 24, I skipped over it a second ago, but it is amazing. Verse 24 might be one of the best verses in the whole Gospel of John or even the whole Bible. Have a look at verse 22, 24. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. There is a way to not face this judgment that is on your own, on your own terms, based on what you've done. There's a way for that not to happen. You can either stand on your own and be condemned, or you can stand in Jesus and what He has done. Hear His words, the words of the Gospel, the good news that He came and went to the cross and believe. Believe in Him who sent Him. Trust in God who sent Jesus to save you because He died for you on the cross. And if you are now trusting in Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, you won't be judged for your sin. Instead, Jesus faces that judgment for you. And so when you face him as the judge, there'll be no judgment left to be given for you. That's good news, isn't it? There's nothing better. There's a way to face this judgment and it's all about Jesus. What you do with him. Now, a whole bunch of you guys have been checking out the things of Jesus for the last bunch of weeks and months. A whole bunch of people have come and joined us over the summer series, and it's been so fantastic to have you coming in and, and checking out this stuff with us. It could be that a bunch of you as well kind of picked up some stuff online. You might have even been streaming with us right now, watching along. It's great that different people are on different parts of that journey but I do want to ask, wherever you're at along that, whether you're pretty new or whether you've been here for three years, what have you personally done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? If He really is God, then you're going to stand before Him as the judge one day. What will the verdict be for you? Is your trust in Jesus? He says that your only hope is in Him, hearing His Word and believing. Trust Him as your Saviour, as the one who died. Have you done that? It's actually possible to spend a whole bunch of time in churches, thinking about the things of Jesus, reading the Bible, singing songs even if you wanted, uh, but never actually get to the point of saying, I'm a sinner who needs rescuing. That's who I am. I'm a sinner who needs rescuing 
Jesus, save me. (laughs) Jesus, be my king. Would you do that for me? That's what it means to become a Christian. Have you done that? It'll be a defining moment for you if you do. It'll change the rest of your life. It'll change your eternal destiny. So make sure you've done it. If you haven't, I want to encourage you, come and find me tonight and have a chat or someone else, Maddie, come and find someone and say, hey, look, I think I want to become a Christian. And we can talk you through how you might come to God in all that and pray to Him. But now I want us to take a closer look at verse 24 because it's amazing even on the surface level. But I want us to notice something amazing about when our eternal life begins. So I think often people think about Christianity as this entirely future-orientated thing. And it is very much a future-orientated reality. But I think sometimes because of that, people can get in this space where they think you've got two options. You could choose to enjoy life now because being a Christian is lame, but then one day you'll probably go to heaven. That'll be good. Or you could have a really bad time now, but then, you know, the danger is you might go to hell later on because you're not a Christian. But that's not how Jesus sees it at all. Have a look again at verse 24. He says, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. In the future, they won't be judged. They have crossed over from death to life. This is a thing that starts now. (laughs) If you're a Christian, if you choose to become a Christian, eternal life is yours now. It starts now. Your eternal life with Jesus has begun if you're a Christian. You cross over from being someone who is spiritually dead to now spiritually alive in Jesus. And you don't have to wait for the resurrection for that to begin. Even as you live now in a body that is dying and destined for death and ultimately a resurrection, even as we live in a world broken by sin, we are spiritually alive now if you know Jesus, if your trust is in Him. His Spirit is in you. You have a relationship with the God who created you and you can look forward one day to the resurrection where your body will be resurrected for all eternity to live in eternal life now in a body not broken and busted up by sin, spiritually alive into all eternity with God. But it began, it begins, it started now. If you're a Christian, eternal life has already started. Jesus takes you and crosses you over from being one who is dead to now alive, spiritually, which is amazing. What a wonderful thing. And so, what you do with the person Jesus determines your destiny. There's nothing bigger, nothing greater for those who find life in Him. There's nothing better and nothing more sobering and serious for those who choose to reject Him. Now, let me finish by showing us, helping us land the implications of this, uh, you know, the way we think about who Jesus is and our future and so on. Let Let me finish up. First thing, our hope of heaven is a physical reality. Often people think about heaven and hell as this place where you go as a soul detached from your body and you've got harps, which seem physical, but anyway, they're there as well, and you're floating on the clouds. That's our picture of heaven. But Jesus says, verse 28, no, one day you'll be raised physically and it will be for a physical new creation. Heaven will be a physical place where you will be you in your body, in a resurrection body. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 15 describes our heavenly bodies, and there's some mysteries in that chapter, but the headline is, it sounds amazing. It's going to be really good. I don't know, like, in, in heaven, will I have a full head of hair again or not? I don't know, but I'm sure I'm not going to be disappointed. Get keen for your physical future in the new creation. It's going to be amazing. That's where it's headed. Second, knowing Jesus is essential to knowing God. So there's many people who would say, yeah, I believe that there's a God out there maybe of some sort. Um, There are whole religions, in fact, who claim to know and worship the true living God, but they reject Jesus. They say that Jesus isn't God. They refuse to bend the knee to him. They dismiss him. They say he's not God. The the staggering implication of Jesus' words here is that if someone claims to honour God the Father but does not honour him, they don't know God as he's revealed himself, the one true God. They miss who God is. They end up rejecting the one true God and that's heavy but it's really important to be clear on it, isn't it? It matters that you get that because it leads to the third final implication. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. Notice in verse 24, it's a two-step thing. Hear Jesus' words and believe. You need to hear before you can believe. You can't trust in that which you've never heard of. We actually need to hear about Jesus and the gospel before you can find salvation in him. Now, that might raise some questions for you. Very well may. What about those who've had no chance to hear? What about people, now these, not on the central coast, but in other parts of the world, in deepest, darkest, wherever, what about them? And just by the by, there's not many places like that in the world. There's, more, there's many more Christians even per capita in Africa, and I don't know about China, but there is a lot of Christians there still. There's lots of Christians in the places that we think of as the places that aren't Christian, just by the by. But anyway, deepest, darkest, Amazon, wherever it is, is it fair for those people to face judgment because they haven't heard of Jesus. Is that fair? Well, the answer flows out of verse 28 to 30 that we read earlier. Verse 30, Jesus' judgment is just. He's a good judge, he's a fair judge, but Romans 1 helps us with this as well. Jesus won't judge people based on what they don't know, rather on what they do know. Romans 1 makes this point, But the thing that flows from that in Romans is actually all of us know enough to be guilty of not responding rightly to our to our Creator. And in fact, whether you know a lot and you have the whole law revealed to you and you know every rule there is to keep and you fail, or whether you know only a small bit and you've seen that there's a Creator God who should be responded rightly to and you haven't, whether you know a lot or whether you know a little, we all know enough to be accountable. But people won't be judged because they didn't hear, they'll be judged because they're sinners. Jesus is just. And so here's the bottom line, when you, when you ask the question, what about those who haven't heard? Well, the answer is, someone needs to tell them. That's where it really should push us. Why not you? Why not me? My honest hope and prayer for for EV night, is that many of you will leave. And I don't just mean leave because you have to go work or get, do a uni degree somewhere else, so that happens as well. But I mean leave 
to these places where there are those who have not heard. I hope many of you will do that. Those places exist here in Australia, by the way, but they also exist beyond our shores. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. How might you use your life for that cause? Wasn't it good to hear about our mission partners and Ben's experience even tonight? (laughs) Praise God for his (laughs) sovereign arrangement of all these things. It's good to hear. You need to be thinking now about how you use your life, how you're going to use your life. In fact, that's one of the reasons we have mission partners is so we can actually, yes, pray and support and give and get behind and we need to do that. They desperately need our support and so support the gospel by going out through doing that but it's also good because it causes us to ask the question, how am I going to use my life for the cause of those who haven't yet heard? How might God use your life? And while ever we stay, while ever we remain here, Would it be because we've chosen to stay to tell those on the coast who don't know about Jesus as well? Because those people are everywhere as well. At uni, at work, at home. They live in your homes, in our sports teams. They need to know the Saviour. They need to know the one who died for them, the one who calls them to come follow him and cross over from death to life. How can you be sharing the good news of Jesus right now, this week, Would we bend every effort to this end? Let's ask our good God for help in this. Let's pray. Father God, we first of all want to declare the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is truly God in every sense and the one who came and died for us. We praise you and we thank you for Jesus. Father, this news of Jesus and what he's done is is far too good to keep to ourselves. And so, Father, please, we pray, would that news go out? We beg, please, would many on the coast hear the saving news of Jesus? And, Father, would you use the people in this room to take this news well beyond the central coast, all over Australia, all over our world, we pray. Help us to ask hard questions now about how we will use our lives into the future. Lord, please be stirring us. And and Lord, please use our lives to your glory, we pray. Amen.